Welcome everyone, I'm Mark Ridgway, I'm the Tony Jones for tonight. Welcome to our webcast listeners, they're very important because they submitted a lot of questions for this evening. Now there is a sheet going around with all the questions that we've derived and I want to thank everyone for submitting the questions. We've sort of simplified them a little bit and uh, if it hasn't quite captured any particular submitter's uh, thoughts, blame me. Uh, just a few rules for today. We've got, we're trying to attempt to cover these eight questions in the 90 minutes that we have. So, uh, questions will be limited. So if you've got a question specifically about something that's been said that you want explained, I think we'll welcome those from the floor. Otherwise, sorry, I've cut you off. I'm like Tony Jones. Because otherwise it disrespects all the people who have uh, submitted the questions. We have an esteemed panel tonight, and I'd like them to introduce themselves. Well, Tony doesn't need introducing. We'll skip him. <laughs> Ron Weinstock. Over me. Um, well, Tony and I have known each other for many years. He was my English teacher at school, so that's how long we've known each other. Um, I've had a career in business, um, which in clothing importing, which last year I closed. I'm uh, also a farmer, and Tony and I have been working together on Gospel Conversations now for quite a few years, me in the, more in the background, obviously. Um, and I'm also a philosophy student at Sydney University. So that's a very brief summary of me. Hi, I'm Andrew Butts. Uh, I actually um, started off by doing commerce and then I did a theology degree, so I like to tell people I've sort of got death and taxes covered. <laughs> and uh, I, I did ministry with the Anglican Church for a while and found myself back involved in, uh, in business but uh, with a not-for-profit with the Anglican Church. And I think I first came across Tony when he was speaking at uh, something to do with the Macquarie School of Christian Studies, and uh, have sort of our paths have sort of uh, woven, but been quite involved in gospel conversations just for I don't know six years or so. Thank you. Well, I want to do a reading before we get underway, and then I'll pray. But uh, this comes from C.S. Lewis. See if you can recognise which book. So, John took the card. But half the rules seemed to forbid things he had never heard of, and the other half forbade things he was doing every day and could not imagine not doing. And the number of the rules was so enormous that he felt that he could never remember them all. I hope, said the steward, that you have not already broken any of these rules. John's heart began to thump. No, sir. That's just as well, said the steward, through the mask. Because, you know, if you did break any of them and the landlord got to know of it, do you know what he'd do to you? No, sir, said John. And the steward's eyes seemed to be twinkling dreadfully through the holes of the mask. He'd take you and shut you up forever and ever in a black hole full of snakes and scorpions as large as lobsters forever and ever. And besides that, 
He's such a kind, good man, so very, very kind, that I'm sure you would never want to displease him. No, sir. But please, sir. Well, said the steward. Please, sir. Supposing I did break one, one little one, just by accident, you know? Could nothing stop the snakes and the lobsters? <laughs> said the steward. And then he sat down and talked for a long time. But John could not understand a single syllable. However, it all ended with pointing out that the landlord was quite extraordinarily kind and good to his tenants and would certainly torture most of them to death the moment he had the slightest pretext. <laughs> and you can't blame him, said the steward, for after all, it is his land and it's so very good of him to let us live here. People like us, you know? How about I pray? Father, give our panel wisdom tonight. Give us insight and humility that we may be able to take on this, this area where it is so confusing for us. We see these caricatures, this caricature I just read, and you're not like that. You're far greater. And yet we grasp trying to, to come to grips with who you are, Father. So we ask that this 90 minutes passes that you will bless us with just a glimpse of your glory. Amen. No time wasted. I'm going to turn to Andrew to tackle the first question, which is, within a creation-based framework, what does sin mean and what role does it play out at the end of time? So I, I think this is a, a great question to start with because often we... Theological positions start with the issue of sin without asking the question about the context of creation in which it uh, takes place. So if we ask the question, which, which or what sort of relationship were we actually created for in the first place, I, I construct a little two-by-two two grid uh, to actually analyse um, what, what are the four options that you can have in relationship. And uh, I sort of... I owe a little debt to Boston Consulting Group who, who started doing that. But it, it seems to me, and I'm sorry that this didn't come out clearly, but uh, basically you find yourself in a position in the first person where you either trust, you, you do not trust somebody, you don't trust they intended good towards you, or you do trust they intend good to you, right? It's quite binary. And on the other side, someone either intends good towards you or you don't. Or, or they don't. So if, if you think about that, one of the states is just enmity. You're just at war if they don't intend good and, and you uh, don't trust them. There's just enmity. A really unfortunate situation is when you, uh, when you do trust somebody and they don't intend good, you're vulnerable. Blah, blah, blah. And when, when you get to the other side, there's this particularly unfortunate situation where somebody does intend good towards you, but you just don't trust them. So it doesn't matter what they do. You reinterpret that in a negative sort of light. They're, they're only doing that good thing because there's some self-interest. And so you still have alienation over here. And so the only category that is any good in proper personal relationships is this fourth, fourth one where 
you trust them and they do intend good. And that's where you can have an intimate relationship. So intimacy exists in that category only. Now, if we, if we apply that to what we're created for, I, I think we'd all agree that we think we're created for that category and, and no other category. That's the reason God created us. He wanted a relationship where we trusted him and he intended to do good towards us. I think when it comes to God, we can just ignore these, this side because we know that that's not the case. Um, he, he intends good towards humanity. Scripture says that. And our problem is, if we're in Adam, we're alienated and we just do not trust that God intends good towards us. And if we're in Christ, we do trust that he intends good towards us. And that, that changes everything. Because you cannot... Just think of any human relationship you have. You do not enjoy that relationship. If somebody intends good towards you and you do not trust them, you don't enjoy it. Where you can enjoy the relationship where you are trusting and they are trustworthy. So it seems to be obvious that that's what God wants and our problem is we found ourselves there because of the sin of Adam. When, when you look at a, a, a theology text or a, theological, a systematic theology, you get all these very interesting definitions of uh, what sin is that you can't actually find in Scripture, if you have time to go through Genesis 3, what actually happens in verse 6, six and 7 is all that happens, all that happens is Adam doesn't trust that God intends good. He, he wants to make up his own plan, right? So the, the problem is he does not trust that God intends good towards him and that's what sin is, that's what has to be solved and it means it's very different to if you define sin as a uh, breach of God's moral law which is what some people define sin as, because if, if the problem we face is a uh, legal problem, God's moral law, you're going to go through your Bible trying to find a legal solution. But if it's a relationship problem, if sin is a relationship problem where it's been a breach of trust, then you're going to look for a relational sort of answer. That's how I was done. What about this section about dealing with how sin plays out through into the end of time. Tony? Uh, yeah, I, I think um, uh, to quote Aristotle, um, Aristotle had famously four causes by which one could understand anything. The efficient cause, the formal cause, the material cause and the final cause. Um, Bentley Hart uses that quite a lot and says that a lot of Protestant theology and a lot of, a lot of theology is actually stuck in what he calls the material cause and the efficient cause. He would cause a lot of our, what does this verse mean, what does this verse mean, as working like down in the weeds, uh, trying to work your way towards. Uh, the final cause, which is my, uh, the, the most noble of all, is I understand anything by the end game. I, I, how I get there, pathways, not so important. The end is what matters. If I understand the final cause, I work backwards. And uh, in a way, Bentley Hart would talk about the approach I've been <coughs> taking as an attempt to go to the final cause, right to the end of all things. And that's where the patristic fathers went. Um, what is the end of all things? And in order to understand the end of all things, they went to the beginning of all things. And the end of all things has to be a total monopoly of goodness. That meant, as, as, I, as I've said in the talks, that they, and Augustine agreed with them on this, they just took it further. Evil is not an ontological substance like good is. You can't equalise them. 
Um, and therefore, inevitably, good must consume the cosmos. It is logically, it must consume the cosmos. So therefore, at the end of all, there can be no sin, there can be no evil. Um, and that would be their answer to what role does it play at the end. It is consumed in the lake of fire, they would say. Anything to add, Rob? Um, well, I think that um, sin is a concept which obviously has consumed the church greatly and uh, become the main game and I think uh, it's, it's really not the main game the main game is the purpose for which the cosmos was created um, and therefore uh, we need to steer clear of becoming uh, bogged down in that, that scenario Mm-hmm. All right. Second question for Tony. John three sixteen. Um, well, uh, the question: How does the cosmic redemption uh, re- redemptionists respond to the traditional understanding of the gospel as laid out in John three sixteen? That Jesus took human form and died on the cross for our sins, and whoever believes receives. Life. Um, well, one straight answer to that is, in a sense, nothing much changes. The gospel of universal redemption uh, has the cross as the as the agent of transformation at its core, just as much as any other gospel does. What it changes is the scope of that of the application of that. It almost has a bigger view of the cross than normal. Uh, that this is such an epic um, vehicle for reconciliation, it will end up reconciling all things, not some things. In in brutal terms, that's what they would say. Um, You could go a little bit further. Uh, I I think that um, John 3.16 is worth reading along with John 3.17, one of the mistakes we generally make reading the Bible is we read verses without reading the ones around it. Um, And of course this is either Jesus talking or John commenting on Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Um, And uh, and it is, the, the immediate verses before that are that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so is it necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. Uh, that everyone having faith in him might have the life of the age. For God so loved the cosmos, much better translation than world, as to give the Son, the only one, so that everyone having faith in him might not perish, but have the life of the age. I don't think there's anything kind of problematic in that verse. The next verse is interesting. Um, because it amplifies the universality. It says, For God sent the Son into the cosmos, not that he might pass judgment on the cosmos, but that the cosmos might be saved through him. That's one of those phrases that you just glide over, but it's absolutely stark that the purpose is that the the whole cosmos might be saved through Christ. That's what verse 17 says. 
And then it goes into whoever has faith in him is not judged. Whoever has not had faith has already been judged because he's not had faith in the name of the only Son of God. You might notice the um, care with which John avoids saying that God judges anyone. You sort of self-judge by your refusal to listen. That's as far as he gets in verse 18. So um, uh, I'll, I'll just say a bit more about those verses, but first of all, I want to say that I had a wonderful friend of mine, epic evangelist from Indonesia, led far more people to Christ than any of us will in ten lifetimes, uh, leader of a church of a million and a great evangelical Christian. And on my back veranda, he just quietly said to me, out of the blue, Tony, I've just been wondering, uh, will everybody get saved? Because it says God loved the world, <laughs> not God loved the church. And then he said to me, of course, I can't talk about this, these things back home. <laughs> um, so uh, if you look at that, the construction of that verse is, is really interesting, um, John 3.16. Um, the, the, kind of, uh, the emphasis is that, number one, everything is rooted in God's love for the cosmos. That's his point. The actual point is that enormous, inextinguishable love lies behind the cosmos. Um, and furthermore... An intent, therefore, to save the cosmos. That's actually the key theme. The second point is that the climax of that love is the cross and the gift of the sun to the world. That's actually the, the climax. And the sun is the, is the vehicle and the exclusive vehicle of this love. That's the second point. Um, and the sun is the agency and the mean by which this love will work salvation. Um, the third, so, so far no problem. As a matter of fact, it's, it's actually an amplification of the normal meaning of that verse. Because the normal, the normal reading of John 3.16, as I read it, and I can remember my dear wife asking our friend Mark the question, it says God loved the world. Does it mean the world or does it just mean the church? Um, so uh, points one and two amplify the love of God and the interest of God. Point three is a bit more dicey where it says that the rule of the sun will require faith, right? So, so there's no question that it's whoever believes in him. Um, now, faith means a voluntary subjection. The patristic fathers, particularly Origen, who I haven't mentioned much, but, uh, and I've got, he's my next kind of reading list guy, but Origen's the big kahuna behind all of you know, really, the, the, uh, not just universal salvation, but lots of the doctrine of the church, are with a massive, massive intellect, much earlier than Gregory, say, in the second century, third century. Origen, um, they read 1 Corinthians 15, when all things are subject to the Son. Everything will be subject to the Son in heaven and in earth, that's just what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the subjection must be voluntary. God will not have a dictatorial subjection where he forces you to bow the knee. <coughs> he will always persuade. So what that means is very simple. Now, now uh, what that meant for the patristic fathers is they believed in a post-mortem 
judgment and reconciliation. They, did, they believe that there was... Uh, the only way out of this is, is that after death there is a... Um, era and opportunity for people to bow the knee to Christ. That's, that's what they all believe, one way or another. Um, in a way, uh, they were uh, believing what Philippians 2 says, uh, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and in earth. Uh, they believe that very strongly. They just believe that that kind of faith would come after death for some people. So... Um, that's that's the full answer to John three sixteen. Good. Let's. I want to move on to this third question. It's being addressed to. Um, I'll let Ron address it. Uh, this is quite from Packer. It's only in connection with the gospel that Jesus and the New Testament writers speak of hell. Thus, hell is very much part of the gospel. So, how does this fit in with universal? thinking um, well firstly I think, I think Tony's made the point quite often that uh, hell is not spoken about much at all in the New Testament um, probably the main part is the main time that it is spoken about is by Jesus particularly in Matthew 22 to 26 and there of course he says Gehenna or the Vale of Hinnom He's not really talking about our Western or Platonic view of hell, which is an eternal place. Um, so I would dispute for a start that um, what uh, Mr. Packer says, that Jesus uh, speaks of hell in connection with the gospel. Uh, I'm, I'm from a Jewish background, and um, if you want to have a serious religion you really should become Jewish. I mean, being a Christian is, is really very casual religion compared to the Jewish religion. Um, and interestingly, Mark, your, the, the passage you read out is an exact um, description of what it is like to be a practising Jew and a Pharisee of the time. Every single law, the 613 laws that they had managed to extract from the Old Testament were imposed upon the general Jewish population of the time. But you need to know a little bit about Jewish history, which I'm sure we do in this room, but I'd like to talk a bit about that, if I could, because I think it's relevant. Um, obviously, Israel had a continuous history up until the destruction of the First Temple. <coughs> At that point, they got carried away into Babylon. Most of the priestly class and the monarch, the aristocracy. So a lot of the intellectual might of Israel went into Babylon at that time. And, of course, they had to deal for the first time in a thousand years with their religion without a temple. And so much of the Jewish religion up until that point was based on the temple and the, the sacrifices and the purifications in the temple... So that's why in, when they went into captivity in Babylon, a lot of the um, best my, religious minds stayed in Babylon. They never returned to Israel um, with Ezra and Nehemiah. And they then formed very important schools in 
Babylon. And that's, that's where the Talmud originated, because it's, also, it's called the Babylonian Talmud. And the Babylonian Talmud was, I'm not sure how much you all know about the Talmud, but it is the, the repository of all the Jewish thinking from the time of the fall of the first temple until the time of Jesus, where the Jewish religion had to come to terms with their religion without a temple. So that's when they start to focus away from the sacrificial system onto every little rule and law that existed in the Old Testament. And interestingly, um, if you look at the Sadducees and the Pharisees, there was a very, of course, big factional dispute between the two classes there. The Sadducees actually did not believe in an afterlife. They didn't accept the Talmud. They saw it as counterfeit. And they also um, didn't even credit the, the prophets. They said the only authoritative section of the Old Testament from which you could base any sort of law from was the five books of Moses. The rest was... The prophets were interest in commentary and the Talmud was something that the Pharisees had made up. So when the Pharisees... When Jesus, of course, comes to his ministry in Israel... It's right at the peak of both factions before the Romans then went and destroyed both of them 70 years later. Um, the Sadducees had control of the temple, obviously, they believed, because they were actually from the, priest, from the priesthood, from Aaron's line, but the Pharisees were from amongst uh, the general population, uh, scholars who had studied the Talmud and could recite it. Now, what I particularly those passages in Matthew 22 to 25, to me, well, they're very clearly directed specifically at the Pharisees, a lot, of, a lot of those parables. And one of the, of course, as I mentioned, the Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife, whereas the Pharisees did. And throughout the Old Testament, there's very little talk of the afterlife. We, we really have no idea what the Jews thought, what the scriptures thought of an afterlife or the world to come. It's just not mentioned, it's not talked about. So by the time Jesus came along, there was in the Jewish religion a strong sense of the afterlife, but it was one that the Pharisees had um, created, as it were. And they had come up with this concept of um, Gehenna, so for them, they had three, three categories of people. They had the, the ones who were definitely going to be in, the, in paradise, and, of course, the Pharisees were the first cabs off the rank because it was all about keeping every single jot and tittle of the law. Then you had a category of those who would be in Gehenna forever, and it wasn't clearly defined who, unfortunately, suffered that fate. And then there was a middle ground of which was most people, who probably spent a year or two in Gehenna. Um, and then they came out. And all these images of fire and darkness and everything that's talk, spoken about in, um, in those passages in Matthew and in other passages, which are very few, where Christ mentions these, he's basically quoting back to the Pharisees their own view of what Gehenna is. And I, 
I would recommend to you, I don't know if any of you have read a book by Alfred Edersheim, a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, where he goes into immense detail on all these things. He wrote in about the 1850s. He was a Jewish Christian who was also versed in the Talmud, and he's able to um, trace very clearly where all these things came from. So I would highly recommend that book to you if you want to get a real handle on on these things. Uh, But I think Jesus was disputing with the Pharisees at that point because his main contention with the Pharisees was you're locking up the kingdom of heaven and you're not allowing anybody else in. Um, And you tell everybody that you're going to go to Gehenna if you're not keeping every jot and tittle of the law. But then he has these parables specially designed in a very ironic way, the parable of the bridesmaids with the lamps and the parable of the talents and um, so on and so forth, where he's turning the tables, I think, on the Pharisees and saying, and, and they were aware of that, they're saying, he's talking about us. The ones who's getting thrown into this Gehenna that we're talking about is actually the Pharisees, and that's why they hated him and went around to kill him. Now, if you put that in the context, I think it's a very difficult thing to try and talk about what the world to come is. Another point is the Jews had three categories. They had the the return of they had the coming of the Messiah and the age of the Messiah, where all the the whole world would be brought under messianic rule, where he would be king of Israel, and um, all nations would be subjected under Israel. Then they had the age to come, which Bethany Hart seems to refer to, and that's where all these um, purgatorial Gehenna type experiences occurred. And then finally they had the world to come, which they knew very little about, but apparently it was, it was just paradise somehow with Israel uh, up the top of the, the tree. But I think any view we have of the, the world to come is very um, it's very hard to pin down but I think reading these passages is very much like trying to read Genesis chapter 1 you know you have to approach them without um, a belief that these are hard and fast scientific (coughs) facts about what we are what we are learning about so when it's talking about Gehenna and hell is never used. Like hell is a is a Christian um, Christian adoption from some ex non Jewish source. I mean, we, this world in itself that we live in is totally mysterious to us. The next one, what can we possibly hope to know? And the Bible does not shed any light whatsoever on it. So, my argument to conclude would be that. Um, when Jesus talks about Gehenna, he's using it, I think, almost as a rhetorical tool to throw back at the Pharisees uh, and say to them, uh, if anyone's going there, you are. Uh, not, not anybody, and not anybody else. I just have a question. Um, Isaiah chapter 66, and Daniel also mentioned regarding... It doesn't mention hell, but it mentions what happens to those... Well, it doesn't mention it very clearly, though. Oh, but it does mention something about uh, the back up, you know, when you... Those who did good, you know, um, 
to be written. Uh, or you dis disagree with Isaiah or Daniel as, uh, or they're just... Well, I don't mind reading it if you want to. I don't think you, it will say... You're getting a bit off track. Sorry. Oh, okay. So, <coughs> keep it up. Because before our esteemed Tony and Andrew respond here, perhaps, Ron, you might want to go on to the next question, which is, it just follows on from it, because the question is, why does Jesus use the term Gehenna when the church for the last 1,500 years has made a real meal of it, according to universalism? <clears throat> well, I mean, obviously, I, I think the two questions are almost the same. But I would say that um, <coughs> the churches, or Christians have reverse engineered the gospel in, in many ways, I think. We, we, you know, you start with the headline. They see that as the headlines. Everyone's, you know, everyone who's not in is going to hell, and therefore we, we have to make a, a real statement about that, and then we'll re-engineer the gospel backwards from that point um, to fit our theology around it. Uh, I, I would say, of course, look, I'm not saying that I'm clear on any of this, but I, I, having listened to Tony's talks and having thought about the subject myself, a lot like you all, no doubt, are doing constantly at the moment, that's why you're here listening today. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of weight that can be put on the counter, the counter argument to just that hell hell is real hell exists that's the end point for 99% of the population. Uh, let's and let's engineer the gospel from that point. Why it has occurred. Well, I think Tony's also spoken a lot about that in relation to August, Augustine and yeah, the I mean, church tradition. I'd like to say a bit about that, um, which is it's a good question because, uh, I mean, leave aside the fact, you know, did Jesus know? I mean, the whole point is whenever you communicate, you run a risk. The risk you run is that people are going <coughs> to screw the message up, right? And anyone who's in a position of leadership knows what that's like. Um, in human activities... Um, everybody knows the leader is more subtle and more mature and the followers who come through turn all these things into hard and fast little camps and they haven't got the intellect to match the subtlety of the leader. That's life. Right? So you can look at that as a leader or Jesus and say, well, the only way out is say nothing. Then, then I'm safe. No one will misinterpret what I'm going to say because I said nothing. So there's no salvation and there's no redemption. Um, so that's not an option. Um, I don't know... I. I I don't know that Jesus knew. I think it's ridiculous to suggest that if I'd have met Jesus at the age of 28 and said, can I just have an interview with you? Uh, can, do you understand what's going to be happening in 1500, 1600 and 1700 with what you're saying? I don't think he would have had a clue. I mean, if you'd have, if you'd met Jesus and asked him to give him, um, for instance, his definition of the theory of relativity or his definition of electricity or his explanation of the Boeing jet... Like, would you really have expected him in his earthly form to be able to say, yes, let me... Of course not, it's ridiculous. He was man as well as God. Um, so I think the idea of him foreseeing absolutely everything in his fleshly form, we should put that aside. What we shouldn't put aside, I think, is the fact 
which I see all in the epistles, is the battle for the ideas really matters. It really, really matters. And you've got Paul taking down Peter, you know, pretty aggressively because he was screwing with grace. Uh, you've got what I see in Hebrews. I, I actually think the writer to the Hebrews was highly suspicious and worried about the Judaizing of the gospel. Um, and so the idea of um, the church becoming a, a ground of debate, and that debate, I think, that, that one of the points Rodney Stark makes about the, 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 the Christian tradition is that it is a very open discourse tradition, unlike any other one. And thus, the history of the church is these ongoing debates. Uh, the definition of the Trinity, which really didn't crystallise until the middle of the 4th century, you know. And um, uh, some of that is very, very healthy. Uh, but some of it is very, very unhealthy. And the, the detour that happened... This huge book here by Ramelli, which is the famously $500 book if you want to buy it, um, on the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, which took her 15 years to write, was uh, the, the, the point, and she is definitely the world authority on this now, but the point is, of this book is, well, the early patristic fathers in general believed in the theory of apocatastasis. It was close to orthodoxy. That's what this says. She's going to write two other books. She said that they won't take her 15 years to write. But one of the two others is, how come Augustine won? How come the wrong guy won in, out of the 4th century? So that'll be interesting to read. Because he didn't completely win, because there's been a very strong tradition um, to sort of peel back that's, uh, of apocatastasis. The final point I'd make, which I think about a lot now, is, in general, um, the feeling is... Uh, nervousness that the doctrine of apocatastasis or universal salvation or cosmic redemption could be heresy. Well, I just give you the other thought. What if they were right and the heresy is hell? And that's where, if you read Bentley Hart, he's, you know, in one of his interviews he said, Christians serve an awful God. And the interviewer said, what do you mean? He just laughed. He said, have I got to tell you this? And he just repeated the, the gospel. God created the world, decided he was going to nuke about 99% of his creation, went ahead and did it. So if we've got that wrong, if hell is as wrong as we think, it's a terrible error. And I more and more believe that, uh, you know, on balance, it is likely to have been a terrible error. You'll go, Andrew. Uh, <clears throat> there's, it's just, there's, there's Pascal's wager, which I, I'm sure you've all heard of. And as, as Tony said, um, if if you're thinking in terms of Pascal's wager, what what is the more extraordinary thing situation to find yourself in? In that, if if you turned up at the pearly gates and thought God was harsher than he really is. Or is it possible that you turn up to the pearly gates and have to say, sorry, God, I actually thought you were much more gracious than you actually are? It's an interesting... Like, which, which problem do you want to make when you, uh, you get to the pearly gates? Do you, want to, yeah, do you want to see God as 
it's more gracious than it can possibly be. I think that's the harder mistake to make. So it means that the area is something that, that I want to keep on exploring. I find it hard to believe um, that we're wrong, right? But I, I think that's the nature of belief. You, you, you don't challenge your beliefs. You, you think they're wrong. Uh, you, you don't think they're wrong by definition. <coughs> and there, there are certain words that we use which, which I find quite sobering. For instance, we use the word gospel very, very loosely... Um, and we've got a traditional view of the word gospel, but the way we use the word gospel is quite different to the way it's used in the, in the New Testament, even the Old Testament in the Septuagint. Um, if, if you just, on a rainy day, go through every reference to gospel, uh, the, the very I think it's once or twice it refers to our, the idea of our salvation and incidentally to the cross. The other 137 times... It's all about God having a plan for all humanity, including all the Gentiles, the whole creation, right? And it's a whole kingship idea. That's the idea that's, that's there. So the word gospel is actually a very big word about whole creation, and we tend to use it about a particular event, and a very important event, but it's about my particular salvation. So it just strikes me, if it's obvious that we now get some of our theological words wrong, then it opens the gate to say, well, we could have been getting a lot more um, wrong. <clears throat> and also, when we keep on starting with our sin as the starting point of how we... <clears throat> if you think your big problem is sin, then, then you've got to create a big framework for it to be the, the, solution, uh, the solution. And... It, it seems to me that if, if we were created with intimacy, for intimacy with God, then the big or the ultimate problem facing humanity is how do we grow into intimacy with God? How do we get close to him? How do we know him? Uh, that's a very different problem. And then we start to see sin as something that's just by, uh, distracted us from that purpose of getting to know God. Those, those, that simple change, uh, changing the, the big story, actually changes the, the problem you're looking for, uh, the solution you're looking for, rather. So if, if sin is your ultimate problem, it, it frames everything from then on. If intimacy with God is your big problem, that changes and, and I think puts in perspective sin. And when Christ has dealt with sin, it, it means that I've still got an ultimate problem, which is, is growing in intimacy with God. And, and it's, a, it's a bigger thing that, that spreads into eternity. So I, I do feel like there's enough evidence around to show that we, we have made mistakes, we do make mistakes, and we should have a little bit of epistemic humility to really dig deep. And what confuses me is the total fear that people have of even you know, looking under the hood and seeing, is it possible we've got something wrong here? Fascinating. Thank you very much. I found that very helpful. We'll keep pressing on. Um, next. Tony, fire. So there's this long list, and we've got a list of passages here that speak of a fire that cannot be quenched. Away you go. Well, uh, where to start on this one? I, I think it's a very good example of um, what Ron talked about, about reverse engineering. So uh, in the English language, uh, there are... In any discourse, there are some words that carry a lot of weight. I like viewing them like icebergs. The word is like what you see above the surface, but underneath it there's this huge mass. And uh, in any human discourse, I mean, I work in the field of innovation, for instance, or strategy. They're big words. There's a lot underneath them. 
Um, the words carry a lot of freight. Well, fire is that kind of word. And um, mostly what people do with a lot of these words is they bring their own um, freight into the word. So the reverse engineered onto fire would be, uh, for instance, often coupled with uh, the, the, the fire that, quote, cannot be quenched. We read that as eternal fire. We almost literalise the fire, like Augustine did, and it becomes like the barbecue at the end of the universe where God is actually roasting billions of people. To be blunt, that's what it is. You can't get away from it. I mean, I just I like listening to so many beloved friends who believe in this hell gospel. They get to hell, they minimise it. It's not as bad as you think. It's probably like a boring rugby game or something, or you know, it's 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 at least Augustine took it seriously. No, they're roasting, including babies, including people who've never heard it. At least Calvin and Augustine took it seriously, and for that, I I, I give them the credit of their convictions. Um, so, the point about fire is that and I gave a whole list of this. I think in talk five, I had many more. This, you know. These are only a few of the passages. I've got a lot more, Mark. Um, you've got to go back to the Old Testament where it began. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, the references in the Old Testament to fire are universally, obviously, to do with metallic purification. That's, that, you know, we use fire as a, as a process of forging purity. I mean, is it James or Peter? Uh, he talks about your fire being refined. You know, so so the whole concept, which is pretty obvious to bring to it, is a refiner's fire. You know, the Messiah. He's well, I'm not going to sing it. It's like a refiner's fire. Well, that's that is the more more universal picture of it. Now, sulphur gets at it, right? So you know, when you just read that thing, oh, that must be like God throwing magnesium or something to make it all burn. Well, no, sulphur is and was a medicinal property. It's used for purification. It's used as a fungicide. It's a medicinal property. So it just adds to the idea that the, behind this idea of fire is purification, intense purification. Well, why is it then it cannot be quenched? Well, it's, it's simple. Nobody can get around, nobody can subvert this fire. No human can put it out. It is a fire that cannot be quenched. It doesn't mean it's eternal. It means it's a fire that you can't get around. You will, nobody will be able to bribe their way out of this one. Nobody will be able to organise their way out of this one. So, um, first, that's my first answer, which is rearranging the conceptual undercurrent. And it's, it's not difficult to just go through those verses with that uh, idea of a refiner's fire in in mind. Now, there's a few other points that one might make, perhaps a little bit more about them. Um, the uh, the Matthew three is is a, is a good example of it. I just thought, Ron, when you were talking, um, the uh, how how appropriate it was. So so Matthew three mentions fire. And um, one of the questions talked about that. Uh, the threefold use of it's actually good because you get fire used very quickly in three completely different ways. Um, I indeed baptize you in water for the sake of transforming hearts, but the one coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. 
He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. So now fire, that's, that's a good fire, one presumes. He whose winnow is in his hand and he will thoroughly pour, purge his threshing floor and will gather his grain into the storehouse and will burn away the chaff with inextinguishable fire. And I think there was another one there. But So you've got these very different uses of the word fire there. So that's where, you know, burn away the chaff with inextinguishable fire. Well, what does that mean? Well, all you've got to do is, as we said, read the whole context. Who is he talking to? A, it's John the Baptist, it's not Jesus. And he's talking to the Pharisees. And he loves the Pharisees. They're his favourite guys. That's why he's opening the appellation of them as you vipers. Who told you to come out? Right? He makes Jesus look meek and mild, and then he goes for them. And if you put Ron, what Ron said, again, with what he said, is that someone's coming who is going to absolutely eclipse you guys. He will baptise with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and in his hand, there is, he's coming, and of course he's, he's quoting Old Testament prophecies. He's going to clean things up. He's really going to clean you guys up. And he's going to introduce, and, 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 and there's a series of metaphors, to your point, Ron. I mean, it's a, fire is, not, is one of the metaphors. The other one is the winnow, the grain, the storehouse. I mean, do we think all they're going to be literal? They're obviously metaphors for God's going to clean the house up and no one's going to be getting away with it. And I think one of the points I believe, which uh, Tom Wright's quite strong on, um, although he's not a universalist, he's probably, but he's, he's probably closer to that than he is to, to that others might be, <coughs> is that the majority of these pronouncements were specifically historical, as is about a lots of the book of Revelation. We read it all as if it's for the future. No, it's not. It's... It's 68 AD, right? And if you believe that 68 AD was a mild event, read about it. It it absolutely justified this. It was genocide. Jerusalem was smashed by Rome. And if you read about it, the Jews jolly well deserved it. I won't go into it now. But nonetheless, they got what they really got it coming to them. What actually happened was three years previously, a Roman garrison was locked up inside Jerusalem, surrounded by zealots, and so they made a truce. The Romans made a truce. And the truce was, well, we'll lay down our arms, you let us go out. And the Jews said, yeah, fine. They made the truce. The minute the Romans laid down their arms, they slaughtered them. Slaughtered all of them. Like, how dumb can you get like, talk about prodding a sleeping bear. And Rome decided, you're going to get it. It took them three years to organise themselves. And in that three years, in that three years, the Jews, in all their arrogance, thought, that's it, mate, they're gone. <laughs> Fantastic. And they started fighting each other then. They were terrible. I mean, you just can't believe it. But anyway, they thought, the Romans are gone. We're going to run this show. Everybody except the Christians. The Christians en masse read this and read Matthew 25, which is when you see these things, which this goes to the rapture verse. It's not about that. It's about Jerusalem, 70 AD. Go out quickly when you see these things happening. And the Jewish, the Christian community in Jerusalem, holus bolus departed and went to a city about 50 miles away, I forget the name of it, Pillar or something. And, and none of them were engaged in the slaughter in 70 AD. So you start to view these things very differently when you put them in context.
and when you get a different conceptual undercurrent. Okay. So, in, I, I, just going back to the whole fire idea, <clears throat> it's a it's a metaphor for a number of different things, and it's very easy for us to pick up on the medieval torture pain sort of thing, uh, and I I don't think we appreciate how much ancient people were in awe of fire, I excuse the pun, you'll realise it soon, in that you could just throw certain dirts onto this fire, certain ore, and it would turn into something precious. It had some magical property, right? So it's very, even when we use a word like refining, it sounds like a really harsh Port Kembler smelter sort of process, but which is true. But for, for them there was a very magical sense about throwing things into fire and making metals out of them. And I... You, you wonder, it's, it's got, you've got to keep that within the semantic range of fire when you look at it. Is this actually a very positive thing as opposed to a, you know, purification is, obviously it's burning away the bad stuff, but I, I think they were focusing a lot more on, on what good could be, um, could be done. And the idea of an eternal fire, or if, if the word is eternal, a continuing process where you're you're glorified and improving, isn't so bad. And it's at that point you realise we're projecting a lot onto the text. Um, there's been a certain speculation which has dominated Western theology for a long time, and I think we should be allowed to raise other speculations and see which one actually fits the evidence best. And it may be that what we're going to come up with is the idea that, that there's going to be a continual improvement in eternity. I think there's a notable lack of conflagration fire is a thing, it's there, it's over there, you're going into it, not, you know, it's all around us, city is burning. You could yeah. have done it, seems like an opportunity, a writer could have taken, it doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to come up a lot, the house is on fire, the city is on fire. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, can I just give a, another <coughs> example? It could be, uh, sorry, I mean, if you come from India, so if you live in India and poverty, is, and uh, it's, hot, it's very hot, and it's miserable, like you live in Australia, you know, beautiful. So let's say, if you, um, so there's two road, two places to go. You either go to darkness, loneliness, um, you know, uncomfortable, and you can never get out of it, and you live forever. And there's no way of crossing over to this beautiful promised land, whether it's called heaven, uh, you know, Australia, you understand that? So, so I mean, look, you know, we, we talk about literally go extremes, but it definitely there's two places to go. Otherwise, like, you can't have those still practicing pedophiles and murderers and, and they, so they're going to end up in heaven like oh sure they, you don't have to change you just doesn't matter what life you live you know, so you have hope so people that died for Christ all the disciples except John all died and many many Christians died for their faith so so why did they, what did you die for so if you believe that everyone's going to be saved well what, what's the point of giving your life for Christ then that's coming up. That's coming up with another question. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's a bit earlier than that, isn't it? If I, if I, I just had want to add one other very important thing to fire, um, which is a major point, um, and it, uh, we'll just I, we can't develop it, but it it, it actually. Uh, so I'll read a bit of Romelli's book, uh, what she says on this, and that is that the real enemies of God in the Book of Revelation. Uh, his real antagonist is not sin, but the, the uh, demonic beings, the beast and the false prophet. And um, they are the ones, in the first instance of the book of Revelation, who are cast into the lake of fire. 
and death is cast into the lake of fire. So they are now, they are always the primary focus of the lake of fire. So this is what Romelli says. Let me briefly analyse the most relevant passages. In Revelation 19.20, there appears for the first time the lake of fire, that in this book is the place of punishment and death as opposed to the place of blessedness, which is the heavenly Jerusalem. Notably, it is first of all the symbols of the powers of evil that are said to be cast into this lake, the beast and the false prophet. Um, according to Interpretation X, which probably goes back to origin, the beast represents all evil, all iniquity, so that every force of apostasy from the good may be cast into the fire. Clearly, Revelation 19.20 is a reminiscence of Daniel 7.11, which it is. The beast is cast into the fire in Daniel 7. Another prophetic test where the beast is cast into the fire to be utterly destroyed. Indeed, I find that Baucom, who wrote a very good book on Revelation, is right to argue that the whole of Revelation strongly conveys the idea of the eventual destruction of evil. This is essentially what its author prefigures in his visionary account. So, very important to bear that in mind, that that this idea of destruction is primarily focused on evil, devil and death. Come back to the question, and of course this is question six, and I'll just as to Ron, about uh, isn't eternal death a just punishment for sin? And of course what happens to those who have performed great injustices, massive murders or genocide, whatever, these things are unresolved. If everyone gets forgiven, isn't this isn't there something wrong in the world, in God's world? Well, obviously, as soon as you've put forward the argument for universal salvation, lots of questions arise. It's not a simple case of... Uh, as you pointed out quite well, uh, there's just two binary categories. You're either in or you're out. But that same argument can be put on the other side <laughs> as well because, a let's say, a traditional Calvinist view, um, and this is something we, in preparing for this talk, the three of us were arguing around these points because... Obviously, you've got a whole scale from one end to the other, which Tony also, I think, mentioned in his talks. You put up a nice... You put up a graph, and you can position yourself on that sliding scale. If you're a five-point Calvinist, then, of course, um, there's only one punishment for one sin, as you read out from C.S. Lewis, and that is eternal... Um, eternal uh, torment, eternal destruction. Anyway, eternal. Your punishment is eternal. There's only one universal punishment, which is just as surely unsatisfying as the other end of the argument, which is pedophiles or murderers. Everyone has the same wonderful life once the new heaven and the new earth comes along. If you're a Calvinist, of course, you start to argue, well, you know, the, the classic argument is we don't understand. Well, God is absolutely holy. The gulf between us and his holiness is so vast that whether you're con committing a small sin or a big sin, they're all justifiably punishable by eternal 
eternal destruction. Uh, I'm sure we're familiar with these sort of arguments. Um, and therefore, God, when we get to stand before the judgment seat of God, and he's telling us, I'm sorry, I know you didn't murder anyone, I know you didn't, you weren't a pedophile, I know you, you know, you had a pretty good life, you, you, you were reasonably well, but I'm still going to have to cast you into the lake of fire forever and ever. Now, none of, all of us struggle with that as Christians, obviously. And I think Tony, again, he's, he's fleshed out a lot of that side of it. We would also struggle with a universalist position which says they get the same deal as everybody else. Um, and, of course, nobody's saying that. And I don't think the scripture says that. I think if we, if we do have a universalist or a, a restoration of everyone, if everyone is eventually restored then um, I think there's a lot of area to discuss some of the other, a lot of passages in scripture that may apply to what this um, reconciling of justice really looks like in a much more nuanced and um, just way. God is, you know, it's just God is the just, he's, he's just, he will just justly judge the whole earth and he will apportion according to one's works and one's life. So um, I think that uh, unless you want to be a five-point Calvinist, then it's, it's um, very... You, you can't really have any explanation for why the punishment for any sin is eternal damnation just as much as you can't justify as a universalist that everyone just gets away scot-free I don't believe that's the case at all yeah, I've, I've also thought that um, the one of the issues and problems with the typ typical Protestant gospel I grew up with is its binary nature it's kind of in or out and um, long ago I began to, and I've mentioned this in the talks, began to come up with you know, some of the problems with that, which is uh, <coughs> people who don't know whether they're in or out. And this especially applies, in my experience, to kids from Christian families. You know, am I really safe or not? Perhaps, I, perhaps I'm not, and I know it was agony for, you know, for at least one of our children. Um, and it's almost like it, it's, it's such a, a, just a switch to flick, yes, no, in, out. And that's the whole emphasis you, you can't get away from the fact that in practice it de-emphasises discipleship, it de-emphasises rewards, all sorts of things. Um, I think what the gospel of cosmic redemption would do is it, it actually would move from being binary to creating a, a whole grey area in the middle. It's pretty sure about the end game, but the grey area in the middle... And the grey area in the middle can go on the reward side and it can go on the negative side. Um, the negative side might be the issue, you've raised issues about what about the pedophile and that. Look, I don't know if you're hearing yourself, but this is, that, if you've got a problem with pedophiles being in heaven, every evangelical's got that problem. How does God forgive a pedophile? This is just, that, that is just a, a, this is not an apocastasis issue, this is a forgiveness issue. And we believe he will and can. 
And furthermore, there's a kind of pharisaical arrogance in me looking at everybody else except myself. I don't have problems. It's the murderers, the pedophiles, everyone except me. As I told one people, get used to the fact your problem is not your sins, it's your righteousness. Because the Bible says your righteousness is filthy rags. If any of us want to get into the game of measurement, we'll be the first people measured. Nobody wins in that game. The problem is not the pedophile, it's the saint. Mother Teresa's got problems. If any of us were righteous enough to get to heaven for our rewards, we would resurrect ourselves. That, that's the, that's the well, standard. I do agree with you on that. So therefore, that issue is absolutely, logically, not relevant to this point. It's, it is relevant to, to, to a discussion of how can God forgive, I, I grant that, but I think we're on... The, this takes us back to the cross and the centrality of the cross. So I think the, the issue, therefore, of... Insofar as various people who believed in cosmic redemption thought about this, including Gregory, including a guy I mentioned early on whose uh, name, I think it's Philip, or it's Peter Sterry, 17th century, phenomenal, uh, you know, neglected preacher. Uh, Gregory MacDonald loves his work, mentions his work. He thought that the post-mortem purification was an awful process like best to be avoided by believing now <laughs> so it's, it's not, not that they thought that, that it would be an easy way towards that faith so there's a kind of a, you know very much I think within this uh, cosmic redemption gospel huge space to talk about fear God you know, you, you know really fear God even though the end game might be um, your reconciliation to God. The other side of the kind of grey area in the middle that the evangelical gospel does not handle at all well because of its binary nature is the whole idea of overcoming. If you read Revelation carefully, it is a pastoral letter as well as an apocalypse and as well as a prophecy and it is all set up by the letters to the seven churches. They are scary letters. All of them are, one presumes, to Christians. And all of them get a... Well, not all of them. Five out of the seven get a really sobering warning. And if you read that with a binary hat on, as a lot of people do, immediately the conversation becomes, can I lose my salvation? How does this apply to me? You know what I mean? It's, but, but, but really, Revelation is quite arguably to a Christian audience. And the goal is that you would be an overcomer and rule with Christ. And the obverse of that is that there are many people in these churches who are not going to be overcomers. So, you know, a, the binary gospel doesn't handle that, that kind of era of where am I going to stand with Christ in relation to the false spirits of the age etc., and his kingship, whereas this more, I suppose, extended landscape of apocatastasis and the... Particularly because it's so clear about the goal. You know, if it's intimacy with God, you know, I could begin to read the overcomers a lot better if I said, we're all going to get there, but how intimate will we be with God? I could put overcoming into that a lot more easily. And furthermore, now I've got a pretty sobering gospel for me as a Christian. 
I can't just say, well, I'm in, that's fine, I'm going to relax. I, you know, the church of Thyatira couldn't do that, the church of Pergamon couldn't do that, and I can't do it either. So it's actually, once you start picking it apart, within the framework of intimacy, it's got a whole lot more responsibility. Just picking up on what Ron was saying, uh, too, that I think at least you've got to start um, recognising that, well, even when you're at theological college and you've got a conservative position, there's a lot of debate between lecturers about how to fit those positions together. So if you've got a maths background, I often think of uh, theology as, as sort of a regression analysis. You've got all this evidence, dots on a, on, a, on a graph, and you've got to try to put some mathematical line through it. And th- theology is often trying to put a line of best fit through some data. And sometimes people like their line so much they ignore and some of the data, some of the outliers, you get rid of them, and all of a sudden my theory fits. And I think we've got to be generous towards each other and realise that's what we all do. And uh, theology often ends up being... You you choose the the thing that's least palatable to you, right? You you, you just get rid of that uh, and then everything else must be right, which which means, as as a group, I think you do theology (laughs) community, you've got to be a little bit more open and and, and willing to look at it and debate it. And it was in a conservative theological college, I had lecturers who, whose um, metaphor, if you like, of eternity uh, were, were, were things like this. I can remember one of them saying, um, our, our eternity is going to be different for everybody, and they would quote certain scriptures and go to Luke, um, and not, say, not talk in terms of rewards, but talk in terms of how we've shaped ourselves, as if there's some continuity with what we've done to ourselves that goes into eternity. And the, the illustration he used was he, he liked a particular opera that was on at the time at the Opera House and he had every LP in those days, vinyl. Uh, and so he knew everything about that opera, had listened to every LP there was and probably owned it, and he had tickets. And when he got to that opera, he was going to enjoy it in a way that if I was invited, I wouldn't because I didn't even know the name of it, didn't understand anything. But I, I can still go to the opera, but, but the way I've prepared myself for the opera might determine how much I enjoy the experience. And I might appreciate it and think this is really good, but it, it's going to be a varying experience on what sort of person I've grown into in terms of that opera. Interesting metaphor, speculative, but it does open up a non-binary alternative and starts to open your mind to the possibility that, okay, uh, what I do might really matter because uh, there's this continuity and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are going to love being with Christ in a way that maybe some of us won't because we don't hunger and thirst after that as much. And that that doesn't seem to be a long way... it, It doesn't seem to be something that doesn't fit with the gospel when you've got... Um, Paul, Paul's saying that God's judgment is just giving us what we want. If, if we turn ourselves into, into very shallow Christians who don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, maybe that's what we get. That's, that's just the way it is. Thank you. We have two questions left. Uh, Andrew, it's your turn again about talking about uh, <coughs> if everyone is eventually saved, what's this Jesus dying on the cross bit? Yeah. So, even picking up on, on the whole idea of justice, uh, it, it's an interesting idea that, that's debated. And you, you may have remembered we had Edwin Judge about three years ago, four years ago, it was always longer than I thought, uh, who spoke a lot about the idea of righteousness and justice. 
the, in Greek, the, there's one set of words which we get both those um, usages from in English. And he, he said some things that are worth going back over on the tapes about how the Romans and the Greeks viewed justice. Oh, well, so the, the Romans, obviously not Greek speakers, but they picked up the, the, the Greek ideas. And when, when you look at that, it starts to open your mind about how we might have uh, a strange way of imposing justice as an idea uh, on scripture. Um, a great one like Leon Morris actually said that. Um, uh, in 1955, he wrote a book called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. And he says, look, there's almost, this is about chapter eight, there's almost no way, he doesn't, he, he, even in the 50s, the English was a little bit more measured. But <clears throat> he said, it's very unlikely that uh, the way we view righteousness and justice are the, what, were, what was meant by the, the original Greek writers, which, which is really scary for, for New Testament theologians at the moment because there's a debate called New Perspective. And, and so the whole theological world sort of bunkered down a bit trying to protect certain ideas, which makes it very hard to have an open discussion because there's that, that battle going on on another front. However, when, when it comes... So I'll just say that because this, this is an area that, uh, again, we're encouraged to rethink. Now, when it comes to why... If everyone is eventually saved, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Well, partly that's easy, but if anyone's saved, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? It's the same question. If, if God's going to forgive anyone, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? If, Jesus, if God was going to forgive everybody, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? I think the unavoidable things about the cross are, are this. If, if there was a, an alternative to sending God the Son to the cross, I'm sure God the Father would have found it, irrespective of what your view is of, of how salvation works. The, the idea that God would do something unnecessary like that just to make an example for us, I find, I find personally... Uh, intolerable. So, you know, that, that, that's my bias. I might be wrong, but I, I find that just unbelievable that, that God could do that to, to God the Son if it wasn't absolutely necessary for his plans and purposes. Um, the other thing is, we're not actually told a lot about what happens on the cross. It sounds strange, but what we have is a number of inputs, the life and death of Jesus and uh, his resurrection the incarnation, and we've got we've got metaphors. We've got depending on how you measure metaphors, there's three to seven of them, which explain the output from the the, the mechanism that we call the atonement. And that's why atonement theories don't get capital letters. It's 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 very fluid. No one knows how the whole thing works. We've just got a whole lot of metaphors that are used, and a number of them. So it's not just one metaphor. And, and trying to develop a theory that holds them all together is, is actually quite tricky. Uh, and there's been one around for a while called penal substitutionary atonement. It's very hard to avoid some theory that doesn't deliver that outcome, right? So it, it, I, I can't see uh, any gospel message really doing justice to the biblical evidence without having some idea, uh, some, some... It's got to fit into that framework of, what, of what's called penal substitutionary atonement. Now, if, if you go back and look at the history of, of the current views of the atonement we've got, the current views of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Um, about the 11th century, there was a guy called Anselm who just woke up one day, right, pulled this idea out of the air and said, God is like a feudal landlord 
And if he's lost, if, he's, if somebody's done something that dishonours him, like a feudal landlord, someone's got to be punished. And it doesn't matter who. There's, he, he just needs his honour vindicated. Now, that's not theology, that's speculation. Like, he, he just pulled that out of the air because he thought it, it made sense of, of Jesus' death somehow. And when you realise that, that trend sort of uh, shaped Western theology for a while, it's disturbing that we would pull an idea out that doesn't actually turn up in Scripture. There's nowhere that suggests he's like that. You've got the, the parable of the, of the father chasing after the, the, um, the prodigal son and, and embarrassing himself to lavish himself on it. There's, there's no idea of that. Later, when you get to the Reformation, they pull out the, the heart or the, the, the engine of that doctrine and they say, no, it's not about dishonour. There's this concept of righteousness and they, they put another engine in to drive their penal substitutionary atonement. And uh, that engine is, yeah, God's got this, this righteousness thing going on which means he's got to do certain things and he's, he's compelled to do it. All of a sudden, he's not quite as sovereign as you'd think because he's, he's under uh, this... this Righteousness that come, comes from within. Now, again, that, that's speculative, right? We, we, we grow up with it and hear it all the time. and We don't appreciate that all they did was drag the Anselm engine out and put the Calvin engine in. And there's a, there's a little bit of um, thought could be going into, is that the right engine, right? We, we, we've got to deliver the same outputs, but is that the right theory to have to drive it? And, and the heart of it is our view of righteousness. And as I said, that whole issue of righteousness is, is up for grabs. We, we should be thinking about how it works. And in a way that really does uh, justice, excuse the pun, honour uh, to, the, to the biblical evidence. So I, I actually think that that question, uh, it, it's, it's sort of, it, it doesn't matter um, if a few or many or all are saved. For whatever reason, there had to be something done that was costly to God to actually keep that plan going. Uh, it, 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 it's like one of the other questions. It just is the way it is for everyone. Could, could I just yep. chime in? Because, I mean, of course, thought occurs suddenly. The difference, really, that we talk about between a universalist position and a non-universalist position is lit, what you call theologically limited atonement hmm. or universal atonement. That is... Of course, it was always in, in the intention of God and in the mind of God that Jesus, while Jesus would be offered to all, his actual efficacy would only be for some. And so his, his atoning power was for the limited few. Um, whereas, if you take a universal, universalist position, I suppose you, you would argue something like, well... Nobody gets in uh, without Jesus' atonement. That's, that's a given. That's clear from the, the scriptures. Um, was Jesus' atonement sufficient to somehow get everyone in? Uh, or was it in the mind of God to only get some in, to create all these vessels for destruction, as, as it says? Um, if, if, if Jesus gets everybody in, then you, have to, you ask the question very validly, what's the point of believing in him now? I'll, I'll just get in later, right? Um, well, I think the scripture has a lot of detail about the advantages in this life of believing in him now. And 
presumably there is a lot of advantages at the end of life for all of us if we believed in him now. Uh, I'm sure when the judgment happens, those who are part of the church now and have believed will have a, a very different journey into the next age than those who haven't. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to believe now rather than later. Uh, whether, but that's a different thing than saying, if um, I don't believe now, I will, I'll still get in, no consequences. If I do believe now, nobody else get. Only those who believe now uh, get in. Everyone else is out. Well, I have a friend, a Russian friend. He says, I don't want to know God. He swears at him everything. Like, he doesn't want to go to heaven. doesn't want God. So he said, oh, he's going to go. He's going to end up in heaven. It's because he hates him. Like, okay, he's angry. Maybe he has some issues. Maybe he should see a counsellor, a psychologist, to have a... I think right uh, here, but uh, Lisa, but what I'm saying is mm. it's a serious thing. So read uh, chapter Revelation chapter 22, 14. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, a couple of verses there. Jesus said, "I'm coming soon." You know, those who are washed, you know, they're going to enter. Look, and those who, outsiders going to be those kind of people. Outsiders. So who are the outsiders? Unbelievers who don't accept, don't follow Christ, don't believe in Him. So, I, I mean, I, th- I think it comes back to the point: is that an is that an eternal? Sin. So how do you know it's not eternal? Well, how can you say it's not eternal? How can you say to that guy there, it's uh, not eternal? Would you prepare to give your life for that person, or would you prepare to? So how, how do you interpret um, what's figurative, what's uh, what's literal? It's well, not eternal. I think that's the point. Yeah. How do you interpret? Well, um, well, do you think? Well, Jesus especially said, it's better for you to enter. There, but there are consequences of us if, if you makes it forever, forever. You know, he, he, he does talk a lot about eternal, eternity. So, well, he doesn't talk a lot about it. He talked hardly all about it. You're yeah. using a platonic term, um, and I spent ages trying to describe. If you weren't here, please <laughs> listen to the tape and then ask the question. The word eternal is a platonic word. I went through that in great detail. It's most frustrating so if you keep so repeating questions so this is a that we have answered before. Is this a wrong reading of interpretation? Yeah. Is it? Oh, really? So all the other uh, scholars in the New Testament that we agree, uh, they say they're wrong. Correct. So, and you have to be correct. And you have to be correct. Us and so millions of others. So you to give your life for that? You're prepared to Absolutely. die for that, yeah, are you? Absolutely. <coughs> we're, we're all dealing with the same text, right? Yeah. And so we, we look at a text, and then there's a word there that we see that the ancient people translated and used differently. And so we've got to make a choice then do, who do we trust? Do we go back before, like to earlier sources and see how the people closer to the date were using the word? Or do we go, no, no, we, we'll take what our peers say. Everybody this century says it means this. They must be right. So we, we're all making faith statements or faith calls and we're choosing who we trust. And I think we should really open our eyes and weigh it up and ask the question, is it possible on a word like this that we've translated wrongly for a lot of long time. Now, when you look at Christian history, it, it, there's always a reforming process where one generation thinks the previous generation made a mistake. So, why would we why would we assume that we've got to the point where there are no mistakes? You go, no, it, it is possible that we picked up 
a strand of thought that we never properly reformed and never properly got right. You've got to, I, I think you've got to at least entertain that as a possibility, particularly when, the, when as Tony said, he, he showed quite convincingly that the, a, a word that we tra have translated in our, our, our English Bibles is not what the Bible actually says. And that, that, that's the cause for, for some re reflection. But I, do, I don't think anybody is saying, I don't even think the universalists are saying that what we do here doesn't matter, right? I, I think our problem is we've, we've, we somehow have this mathematical equation where it's either plus one or minus one. It's in our binary, right? It's, well, I know binary is really zero and one, but it, it's, it's hell or, or, or not. And when you, when you realise that the, the promise of the gospel is that we, we're going to be heirs with Christ, then, then our destiny <laughs> is somewhere off towards infinity. And if our destiny is somewhere off towards infinity, then the, 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 uh, the spectrum of possibilities for us is actually bigger than just binary. And I, I, I do think you've got to take the metaphors, although they might be rhetorical, um, so, some of the metaphors, I think, uh, are warning us, as well as the Pharisees, that get this right, right? So I, I, no one is saying, because there, there's a possibility of a universal uh, redemption, therefore... You know, tools down, no one's got to worry. Uh, it, it becomes a greater thing because you realise, no, there's a huge infinity of opportunity out there. It should drive us more to want to be better gifts to give to Jesus. And it, it should be motivating and empowering us and making us really worried that some people will go into eternity not the way that God intended them to be and not experiencing. I think the early Christians were, were the, the inventors of the idea of FOMO. It's a massive fear of missing out. Much, well, much more than a fear of hell... It's much more of a fear of missing out on, on that at infinite potential. So, yeah. Can I, can I just say something about that? It's actually a question that was raised that I think I'd like to just say something about, which is the rapture. Uh, somebody uh, put that in, um, quoting the verses in um, Matthew about two people in the field, one's taken, mm -hmm. one's left, and, um, and, and how does the doctrine of apocatastasis impact on the rapture? Um, I think the rapture is some kind of fiction. Um, I, I, uh, I, haven't, I haven't sort of studied it again for a long while. I know when I was a younger Christian. And it, it does uh, intimidate lots of people because they, you know, they worry about, um, have I missed out? Perhaps the rapture's already taken place and I didn't get the taxi. And, um, but, but the point is very clearly to me the, the verses I've just quoted and that the person quoted in, in their question, you know, two people in the field, one's carried off, one's spared, <coughs> two women grinding at the mill, one's carried off, one's spared. Well, we have, you, you can import onto that a rapture, but you could equally import on it. It's a general warning that two people are together, one listens, one doesn't. Yeah. Um, you'll have two people in exactly the same situation. Um, one was ready, one was not ready. And Jesus does a lot of that stuff, which goes back to what you've just said, which is it really matters the decisions we make. Nobody's saying they don't. You can be side by side, so be very watchful, be very careful. If you take the case where a lot of this would have applied to the case I just gave historically, six, imagine, 68 AD, um, there were people living in the same houses side by side. One lot got up, took the whole family and went, the other lot stayed. The lot that stayed got, got slaughtered and the other lot who took the word of Jesus seriously were spared. So I think 
it's definitely a sobering thing, but I don't think it's a pl- it's 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 putting the rapture onto it, uh, whatever. You know, just I think the rapture is um, a kind of it's happening within. It's a platonic framework um, where we're zapped up to heaven. Um, it's not. It was never conceived within the framework of a new heaven and a new earth. We need to wrap up with this final question, which I think is a beauty. If we see God's intent as cosmic redemption and God's judgment as purification rather than punishing people in hell, then what does it look like and feel like to be real salt and light as ecclesia in our communities, church communities? What's the future going to look like? Uh... Tony. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question we could say a lot more about. Um, and I think I could summarise it as uh, we move from ghettos to first fruits. Um, I think, you know, what we've tended to do as Christians is have a pretty kind of ghetto-like concept of the ecclesia, which is where the uh, exclusive club and come and join our club. Um, and that's proved problematic more and more and more and more. Um, you know, we, we talked about that in the whole faith at work movement. It's kind of insulated faith from being able to say anything to ordinary life. Uh, the word ecclesia and the, even the, the word church, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, I think, in, become an institutionalised, um, hardened concept in our language. Uh, a word like a gathering might have been a better word for it. First fruits, uh, which is the phrase used of Jesus and the phrase used of those who believe. Um, not we are the only or we are exclusive, but we are the first fruits. And that metaphor runs all throughout the scripture for those whom God has chosen, which is very interesting because it immediately implies there's going to be a, a latter harvest that's a lot bigger. Um, first applied to Jesus, first fruits of them that perish, then to us. And if we think of ourselves as the first fruits, that means we, we have a message on behalf of the world, not instead of the world. Uh, we are the ones who have uh, the early adopters, to use a marketing phrase, who kind of got the story early and therefore are able to articulate and mediate it to far and wide. So uh, I, I think if... If our churches thought of themselves as first fruits in their communities and in their societies, it's a much more uh, rich, evocative, dynamic, sharing uh, metaphor than the church. Yeah, so uh, as soon as you raise the whole idea of mission, uh, we were talking about some some Calvinist thinking, and there's always been a problem for hyper-Calvinists, they're called, that if God's got the whole game worked out decided everything if you've got a very tight view of what God's doing uh, then why bother going on the mission field why, why bother evangelizing he's going to do it anyway he's going to send his Holy Spirit so it, so when, when people say the universalists got a problem because why would you bother evangelizing we know that the other extremes got the problem because why would you bother so it, it's not a, it, it's not really a fair uh, attack if you like because everyone's got exactly the same um, problem. I do feel that there, there are certain words, again, that we, we might want to rethink the nuance of our translations. Um, 
when we talk about the, the wrath of God in our translations, you look at the word group that's used and the, the early church, the, the, the period where the Bible was written, my Greek's not that good, so I'm, I'm quoting people like Edwin, um, it, it probably meant more indignation than wrath. And you go, oh, okay, that, that actually changes something. Like, if God loves us and wants us to do something that, that he's destined to be good for us, um, you know, parents get indignant with their children when they're, they're hurting each other. It's, it's not a wrath thing, but it's an anger thing. So you, you don't want to get rid of the word anger that's there, but an indignation might have been a better way to continue translating it than, than wrath. And even the punishment idea, they, they didn't think it had God being retributive. They, they seem to think in terms of it being consequential. Um, the word judgment, we, we tend to think of a very... Well, I tend to think of judgments as things that judges do, guys in wigs, law, pronouncement, and, and that's the, the, the metaphorical framework I project onto the text. Um, but the word judgment means crisis. And a crisis can be, you know, one day there's going to be a day of reckoning where you're going to have to just, you know, all your decisions are going to come home to roost. Mix some metaphors a bit there. So <clears throat> I, I think if we got a little... I think we, we should be getting a little bit clearer with our thinking about these particular words as a church. If you ask me what the church should do. Um, and, and maybe... Maybe we'd find, if we move that line through the data a bit, it actually does fit the data a little bit better than the ones that we're using now. Ron? Um, yeah, I think... Um, uh, this, Andrew's point about... We're on an infinite journey. We just tend to think that the journey is up to the the judgment, and that sorts everything out. But I think the judgment is just the start. Um, and obviously there will be a lot of... Um, uh, there'll be a lot that we'll be happy about when we get to the judgment, that we have mm. believed in Christ now. <coughs> uh, I, I think of that parable, the, the, the bridesmaids, the ones who get into the, the wedding feast... And then, who had oil in their lamp, brought the oil with them in their lamps. The other six didn't. They had to rush out and try and buy it. And by the time they came back, the door was closed, and they could hear the party going on inside. And they were knocking on the door, "Let us in! Let us in!" And they said, "No, sorry, I didn't know you." Well, I, again, a, a metaphor, a parable, but it does give some indication that there's a heck of a lot good about having believed in Christ now. But that's not to say that, that... That's just the start of the journey. There's an infinite way to go from there. And I think there's plenty of room for God to work out justly uh, and fairly and wisely everybody's journey in this life and then take, take that into the next infinite age and work out all the paradoxes and unreconcilable issues that we seem to have now about um, how, do, how can God possibly differentiate between every single human being that ever lived, rather than just say there's a group that's in, there's a group that's out. I think there's a lot of scripture that probably supports that view and there's a lot of our own experience which would support that sort of general wisdom. And it's something that I think, as human beings, we import a lot into 
the way we run our society, the way we, the way we run our relationships. Um, so, you know, Tony's talks have really helped me to consider a lot of these other options rather than just uh, probably a very Calvinistic point of view, which has a beauty about it. Let's not get... Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a wonderfully precise and well-reasoned and argued explanation and, and attempt at systematising a lot of theology. But then again, uh, to use your metaphor, there's a lot of points off that curve that we, we also struggle to reconcile with that view as well. Very Swiss. If you've dealt with them as much as I have in business, mm -hmm. it's easy to imagine Calvin. Mm -hmm. Just a question, Tony. Um, you pointed out about first fruits of the church and the church being uh, on behalf of. And isn't that a reflection of what the Jews were meant to be? Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's it, continually it, there. It's a continuity. Um, uh, I actually think there was a form of the universalist debate going on while the New Testament was being written. <coughs> and that was uh, an expansion from the Gospels only for Jews to the Gospels to all the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And they, took, they found that as hard to accept as we're finding it often to accept that all humanity is to be saved. And if you read the New Testament through those eyes, you'll see that was just uh, the theme of Sermons, Peter uh, in Acts 10, and so on. That's a really good point. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Would you agree? Yeah. I think so. So, uh, on behalf of uh, everyone here, thank you. And Tony, as you always like to have the last word, you've got the floor. <laughs> well, this was the. Uh, had to stop somewhere. Um, uh, I, I began this talk. Uh, these talk. I began thinking about these talks quite a while ago, a few years ago, um, as an inevitable question to be asked. And um, I was scared to do it because I, my eye, my own ideas were certainly not clear, um, and I knew the topic was uh, controversial. I did it for the reasons I said. Um, I wanted to be a stalking horse and get this dark question out in the open. My goals have always remained to open up the debate and widen the possibilities um, uh, and uh, probably to get hell as eternal torment off as a, as a theologically or biblically appropriate option. But you know, anyway, mainly to get the debate happening, but certainly to get the apocatasis on the table as a very solid orthodox position and um, thank everybody for the encouragement along the way I was deliberately the, the way you develop any ideas in life as I said in the beginning is you take a hypothesis and you run with it run with it run with it and then you work out whether you like it or not so I've done that and I certainly want to acknowledge also the help of the Lord and friends because along the way a lot of inputs came and my own ideas grew um, they continue to grow. Um, but the other kind of broader goal I've had for us all is not so much 
to take a certain position on universalism as to get for us all to get a bigger picture of the project of God, um, this phenomenal picture of the end of all things, um, which uh, which which I think it certainly has happened for me. I've, uh, I've I've been blessed reading, and uh, what I've been reading. Um, so, in a way, we could say more. Um, I, I think it's appropriate to give it a pause. Um, Ron's going to uh, give us some interesting talks on mind and matter, just to lighten things up a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, which I've. Uh, you happy with my? title uh, yeah, yeah the incarnation that, so a couple of talks two or three um, it's mind-boggling when Ron talks we know it's mind-boggling um, it's uh, essentially um, the title will be the incarnation a detour or destiny and um, uh, he will take a a what Ron is talking about is very much at the forefront of uh, debate both in the secular world and in the Christian community, the, the soul, the mind, um, the nature of what it is to be a human being. And it is an area which I foreshadowed before that we have modern... The creation, you know, the creation gospel is, a, is in the middle of a very... Uh, a series of modern debates, and this is one of them. What does it mean to be... Like artificial intelligence? Uh, the phrase is every... You know, the, the assumption is machines can think... And uh, so Ron's talks will take us right through that. It'll be very, very interesting. And I think, just to say something else, Ron, because Ron's Ron's a a master of the understatement. Uh, Yeah, Ron and I are qualified for nothing, being businessmen. Um, We're just kind of what we have short attention span, so our mind reads a lot of stuff. But uh, I think Ron has a very unique and important contribution. to the debate because which is what you're doing in your work which is Ron is bringing together two very big fields that nobody has brought together um, so one is philosophy and the other is uh, the new science and uh, as you've said to me before all the books you've been given are either a philosopher who's got a shallow understanding of the new science and quantum mechanics or a physicist with a very shallow philosophical understanding I think Ron you know, one of the one of the gifts God has given you is you've got very deep in both. So I think what we'll hear is special. Gosh, what a build up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a salesman. I can give more talks on the topic though. I just want to say for next year if people are interested. Um, I did have some more stuff I wanted to say. I'm just gonna stop, but uh, if it is interested, there are two or three I can give next year. One's on James, but it struck me at the end of all this that I probably haven't ever gone through in a systematic way the huge areas of Paul's epistles which are absolutely a proclamation of universal salvation mainly Romans would everybody if I said to everybody here do you all understand how Romans 9, 10 and 11 climax with a universalist declaration does does everyone understand that? Because most people read Romans and stop at chapter, you know, chapter 8, Romans 1 to 8, and then 9, 10, 11 is this funny bit on the Jews, and then you get a bit of pastoral stuff at the end. That's how I read Romans. Whereas, in fact, it's a huge treatise that climaxes at chapter 11. 
which is, oh, the depth. He just breaks out the wisdom and mercies of God. So, I mean, I could... It just suddenly struck me, hang on, I don't think I've actually given the systematic... The, the huge text in Romans, 1 Corinthians, um, Ephesians and Colossians, where it was these texts that gave people like Gregory the clues to look through. So I could give a talk or two on that next year sometime, if that would be of interest. I won't have a rest first. <coughs> Listen to what that. Good idea. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you again, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you.